Um, so we're in the middle of a series called Starting Point. Um, and, and basically the idea is, what would it look like if we were to restart our faith from scratch? If you had never heard about Jesus before, you'd never been to Sunday school, your mom or your dad or your grandparents had never told you anything about faith. If you were starting from the, from the ground floor, where would you begin? And so over the past few weeks, um, we have been looking at some of the things that I think we need to wrestle with and grapple with if we were to restart our faith or to start our faith for the first time. This evening, what I want to talk about, this evening what I want to talk about is something that was very likely part of your childhood faith, at least for some of you, if you were raised um, in an evangelical tradition or if you were friends with someone in that tradition. And, and it's essentially, it, it revolves around the idea that, that we should pray and ask God for forgiveness. So for some of you, um, this may have been just, you know, when you said your prayers at night, your parents encouraged you to ask God for forgiveness. Maybe you named something. For others of you, it may have been slightly more hardcore. Right? There was an altar call, and essentially you were told, unless you come down to the altar and receive the gracious and loving forgiveness of God, you will burn for eternity, right? So it's a little, um, it's a little more of a, a little harsher um, call. Um, others of you grew up in a more liberal tradition. Maybe you grew up in a mainline church and you'd never heard of, an, uh, of the, some of the, like, you know, saying a prayer, kneeling at an altar and saying a prayer or asking God to forgive you in kind of the ways that evangelicals do. And then, like, a friend invited you to youth group or to young life, and you're like, what is this? I, I still remember one of my friends um, did not grow up in an evangelical church. He went to youth group with a friend, and the youth pastor that night told them that they had he was going to give them an opportunity to ask God to forgive them. And if he didn't, there's a good chance that they could leave that space and be hit by a truck and maybe die. And I mean, he just was, he was so freaked out. He's like, because I believe in God. And he's like, I trust that youth pastor. And I don't, I, but I've never heard of this thing before. And one of the things I've realized is there's so much misunderstanding about forgiveness and salvation and all these words that we kind of throw around in the Christian tradition. And so this evening, what I want to do is I want to look at the idea of asking for forgiveness. Because when you're young, when you're young and you're told to ask for forgiveness, it's really pretty easy. I mean, unless you... <sighs> Unless you were just a really troubled child, the chances of like having anything really serious that you need to ask for forgiveness for are pretty slim, right? You, you know, you, you ask for forgiveness for, you know, lying to your parents. Um, I, I said this morning, um, asking for forgiveness for hitting uh, a friend on the playground. And then I realized like, I was like, these aren't serious. And I was like, well, that's technically assault. And I'm not saying like hitting at someone isn't like a bad thing. But when you're 12 or 10 or 9, it's not quite as big a thing. But the problem is, as you get older, as you get older and you, you enter college and your young adult years, the things that you need to ask forgiveness for become bigger. And attached to the things in which, that you need to ask forgiveness for is often shame and guilt. Many of us have been carrying around shame and guilt about things that happened years ago. Maybe when you were in college, maybe it was a relationship where you just, you still think about the way you treated that person and it haunts you to this day. For some of you, it was a weekend. For others of you, it was an entire year of college. For others of you, if you're honest, it's like all of college. If you could just go back and forget those four years. 
I was thinking about it this week with everything that's been in the news, and, and, and I was thinking about how much raw emotion has been brought to the surface. Because on the one hand, you have all these people who have, um, who have been victims of sexual assault and, and all of that pain and that trauma is kind of coming to the surface and people are sharing their stories. I mean, that's what we've seen in such a powerful way over the past year with the Me Too movement is all of this pain and this trauma that was underneath the surface is beginning to bubble up. And we, many of us who were blind to it, are for the first time coming to some sort of grips and a grasp with how big of an issue this is. And so you had that going on this week. But the other thing that you had going on this week, and people haven't talked about it quite as much, but I've heard a number of people kind of mention it, and it's separated, like I'm not tying it to, the, to sexual assault. But the other thing that's come up is a lot of people just thought back about like their own college years, their own high school time, their own years as young adults. In all of the, the really dumb and problematic and troubling things that they did. Because a lot of us just made poor choices when we were young and continue to make poor choices. And, and there is shame and guilt that follows us around. And what are we to do with that guilt and shame? And, and this isn't necessarily a religious category. There are people who are completely irreligious, who, who have no faith at all, who are still followed around by a cloud of guilt. And the question is, what can wash away my guilt and shame? What can wash away my sin? Or maybe said another way, is what can wash away my memories? Because for many of you, you, you try to suppress the things that you've done. You try not to think about it. Um, you try not to think about the hurtful things that you've said to someone. Maybe it's the hurtful things you said to a family member that just really destroyed that person. Or maybe it was the, the things that you did in a relationship that if you could go back and change what you had said or how you'd behaved, you would give anything to go back and have another opportunity. And so you, we, we try to suppress and forget and then and then you see a photo, a friend pops up on Facebook, or you hear a name, or maybe you drive through a city that you hadn't been in in years, and all these emotions start rushing back, all these thoughts, all this guilt, all this shame. And some of us, we try to, legitimately, we try to drink it away. Like, if we have free time, we are probably just a little buzzed because we don't really want to be alone with our thoughts. Others of you, you just never stop. You are an energizer bunny, and not just because you have extra amounts of energy, but you never stop because you don't want to be alone with your thoughts. What can wash away our guilt and shame? What can we do to escape these thoughts? Now, it's interesting. Some of you, some of you are, are predisposed to guilt and shame. You literally probably have done nothing in your life that you should feel any great guilt or shame about, but you are just predisposed to feel it. So like, you once looked at the driver next to you that cut you off with just a bit of a sharp glance and you still feel really guilty about that. Like every moment you think, about, that person doesn't even remember you existed. They didn't even notice you, but you still feel bad about that, right? Some of you are just predisposed to that. Others of you though, you are quite adept at re-narrating your past. And you've convinced yourself that you were just young, or you were angry, or you were lonely, or you were broke, or you didn't know any better. 
And, and one of the things I wanted to say before moving forward in a sermon about forgiveness and guilt and shame is, is, we, is we understand sin, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, sin is understood within relational frameworks. Sin is about the breaking of relationship. It's about breaking of relationship between God and humanity and, and between humans. And it's also about the breaking relationship between humanity and God's good creation. So sin is relational. And, and, and so there is a component, which is what we're going to be talking about this evening. It is the restoration and the restoring of relationship between us and God, or the forgiveness that is offered by God. But there's another, there's another piece. There's another piece, and that's the relationship or the restoration of relationship between us and other people. And one of the things I think is really important to, to hear when we talk, have a sermon that talks about forgiveness and talk about sin and shame and guilt and, and I'm going to go into this a bit deeper in a minute, but it is the idea that, that Scripture and Jesus take sin and brokenness very seriously. It's not like, well, it's not that big a deal that you cause that pain. Right? It, that's not what's going on. And there's a quote by Miroslav Wolf that I think gets to this so powerfully. He said, genuine forgiveness must first exclude before it can embrace it must name and shame the evil and find an appropriate way of dealing with it before reconciliation can happen. Otherwise, we are just papering over the cracks. And I think that's so important as we, as we come to, as we wrestle with our past. There are some of you here this evening that, that there is somebody that you need to reach out to and say, I, I just need you to know I, I wronged you. I mean, you might not use the word sinned against you because it just makes you look weird. But there is someone like you need to call and you need to say, I wronged you. Like, I mistreated you. And, and, and I know that you've moved on and you've probably forgotten about this, but I need to ask your forgiveness. I want to name and own what it is that I did. But there's still this other piece that even once we do that, even once we do that, there's still this, this cloud that seems to hang over us. What can we do to wash away our guilt and shame? And then added to all this, there's this whole conversation about mistakes and versus sin and, and part of it is the one of our one of the reasons that we want to just think about what we did as a mistake and kind of brush it under the rug is because we already struggle with feeling guilty and if we own our brokenness and we own the ways that we have hurt and caused pain and brokenness with other people if we own it it just brings more guilt and shame and so it's much easier just to try to sweep it under the rug and pretend that it wasn't that big a deal. And as you're considering restarting your faith or as you're considering starting your faith for the first time, forgiveness is something you need to wrestle with. Now, every faith tradition has some way of dealing with sin and brokenness. They would all use different words and talk about it in different ways. But every tradition talks about the forgiveness of sins or guilt or shame in some way or the other. Often it is a path that you need to follow. You know, there's certain pillars or things you need to do to bring about your healing. But, but what's unique about the Christian tradition is that it's not a thing you need to do, but there is someone who claims to offer forgiveness. Now, a few of you 
are, are already jumping ahead and you're like, yeah, I know. It's called, it's named Jesus. I've heard this sermon before. Thank you so much. And you're starting to make your to-do list for this week. But I need you to stick with me. There's this guy that we discover in the Gospels by the name of John the Baptist. You probably heard of John the Baptist if you've been around church for any period of time. And um, John the Baptist, what makes him interesting and unique beyond the fact that he is just this really odd character who captivates our, our, um, our imagination because, I mean, he ate locusts and honey and that's kind of what he lived on and he had animal hair for clothes. He's just a weird dude. And the interesting thing about John the Baptist is, is that his story appears in all four Gospels, and it's a fairly consistent story. If you line the four Gospels beside each other, there's a lot of things that don't appear in all four Gospels. And if they do appear, they see, they're, they're told differently, they're put in different places, but there, there's a real consistency in all four Gospels with the story of John the Baptist. But not only that, we also find the story of John the Baptist um, in the writings of Josephus, who's a historian who lives about 100 years after, uh, 100, 150 years after Jesus dies. He talks, this historian talks about this guy by the name of John the Baptist. And the other thing is the Quran also talks about John the Baptist and tells a very similar story. It is the one, like, it is the one element of the Jesus narrative that we just find just about every, with, in a number of outside sources, and the story is, there's this guy named John the Baptist, and, and he is a precursor. He creates the way. He, he, he um, sees himself as the forerunner to the Messiah. And, and he is a spectacle. People are captivated by John the Baptist. So we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 5, that John, is, um, that John is, is preaching by the Jordan River, and he is baptizing people. And we read that the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Now, my guess is that this is an exaggeration. About 200,000 people lived in Jerusalem. Chances are they did not all go down to the Jordan River to see and be baptized by John the Baptist. Partially because, and this is, I just think, is kind of an interesting aside, where John is baptizing people is about 20 miles if you could fly from Jerusalem. But if you walk, it's about 40 miles. Like, people are trekking a long ways to see John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist is down by the River Jordan, and he is preaching a message of, of guilt and shame. You people suck, and you need to become better because a judgment is coming. John was really good with the words. And then, and then he would offer to baptize you, which, by the way, baptism is something that Christianity um, adopted from Judaism. In Judaism, when you would convert, you would, there would be a ceremonial cleansing often with the dipping in water. So Christians just take and adopt this tradition from Judaism. So, so John is down there in the water and he's telling people how awful they are and how, much, how they should be, how guilty they are. And then he's offering to, to baptize them. But he, he tells them, look, you need to know that I'm just, I'm just a preview. There's someone coming who's so, who, who is going to do something so much more powerful and, and life-transforming than what I'm up to. And, and, and so um, John is, is baptizing by the water, and, and someone asks him, John, who are you? And he replies, I, John answered, I baptize with water, but someone greater stands among you who you don't recognize, and he comes after you, but I am not worthy to untie his sandals, the straps of his sandals. Like John's like, 
you think I'm a big deal. There's coming someone that I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. Something is coming. And then, and then one day, John is baptizing. He's in the water. And all of a sudden, he catches a glimpse of, G, a glimpse of Jesus on the horizon. And in his dramatic John fashion, he like stops and says, look, look. And everyone's like, what's John looking at? We read in John 1.29, the next day Jesus saw him coming towards him and said, look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away, or another way, of, it literally means to pick up and carry off, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God who picks up and carries off the sins of the world. Now, John's audience, which was primarily Jewish, would have, would have understood two things tied to the concept and the idea of the Lamb of God. The first is, John's audience would have understood that once a year on the Day of Atonement, you needed to offer a sacrifice to atone for your sins. But it had become more just tradition and less something that people were doing because they thought that sacrifice actually washed away their sins. It was just a thing that they did. But the, the, more, the thing that was probably more on their minds, that was the, at the front of their mind when they thought about the Lamb of God, is they, think, they thought back to the Passover story from 1,500 years before that moment. Remember we talked last week about the Passover. The Passover is this, is, this moment, is this moment before Israel is liberated from the oppressive power of Egypt. And right before they are freed, they are told to sacrifice a lamb and to put the blood of the lamb around the doorpost in expectation of their freedom and their liberation the next day. Moses says, we are going to be free. We are going to be liberated. But before we are liberated, before we are freed, I need you to do this thing. And so in the mind of John's audience, the Lamb of God would have been tied directly to the idea of liberation and freedom. Look, your salvation, look, your freedom, look, your liberation is at hand. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Because Jesus then, so th that is like the beginning of Jesus' ministry. On the one end, the one bookend is John sees Jesus and the first thing he does is he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Fast forward to the end of Jesus' ministry. The very last thing that Jesus does the night before he is betrayed is he gets together with his disciples and he celebrates the Passover meal. That very meal that this moment which John had hearkened to. Jesus gets together and he celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples. He gets together with his disciples the night before he, is, he dies and he celebrates a night of liberation. He celebrates a night of freedom. He celebrates the night before God breaks into the world and does something amazing and incredible. Right? That, is, that is what Passover is about. There's this moment when God breaks into the midst of the everyday, into the midst of the ordinary, and does something extraordinary. And so in this Passover meal, Jesus does something so radical that we often miss how like, outlandish this is. Because in this meal that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples, he says, this meal that you've been celebrating for 1,500 years, that's about freedom and it's about liberation from Egypt, this meal is now going to become about the gift that I'm going to offer. 
This, this bread is going to represent my broken body, and this wine is going to represent my blood that will be poured out. I am the lamb who will take away the sins of the world. I am the lamb who will pick up the sins and carry them off. And I'm guessing after that meal, when Jesus makes this Passover meal about himself, his disciples, I'm just telling you, his disciples got together and said, I think he might be the son of God, but he also might be crazy because he wants us to make Passover about him. They didn't get it. Hours later, he was arrested. He's beaten. He's lied about. And at, and at, the, hands, and at the hands of the Roman of, of the Roman government, he is nailed to a cross. Now, crosses, the way that people die on a cross is that they are suffocated, right? That's how you die on a cross. It, you, you can't hold yourself up any longer and you collapse down and then you suffocate. But the text is clear. Make sure that we know that Jesus bled to death as the Lamb of God, right? The authors, the writers, they are tying back what is happening in, 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 with, in this moment with Jesus. They're tying it back to the first Passover. It is a moment of liberation. It is a moment of freedom. It is a moment of new possibility where God breaks into the world and makes something new possible. Look, the Lamb of God who picks up and carries off the sins of the world, of all people. And all times. And then on that night, all the people who ate with Jesus, the Gospels tell us, ran away and lost faith. What can wash away our sins? What can wash away our guilt, our shame? Because the truth is, and you, you don't need me to tell you this, but, but nothing else seems to be working. You're followed by a cloud your past just hovers over you every place you go. It gets better, right? There are moments and seasons where it, you forget and you think maybe this is the time when I've been able to overcome my past and then it all comes rushing back. And, and some of you are destroying your health. Right? You are, you're destroying your health. You're destroying your relationships because you're trying to medicate and wipe away your own sins. You're trying to provide your own healing and your own forgiveness. But at the end of the day, you don't think in these terms, but the question you're asking is, what can pick up and carry off my past? What can pick up and carry off my sins? Paul, one of the early leaders in the church, says it this way, and when you were dead in sin, meaning when you could do nothing about your sinfulness, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us of all our sins, erasing erasing, erasing the record that stood against us in its condemnation. Some of us have, like, there are things we have done that we should be condemned for. Like, that, that it is not that we have, like, it's not that it's not that big a deal, but, but what Paul says is that, that when we die or dead, God can make us alive and give us new life when he forgives us of our sins and erase the record that stood against against us. On the night that Jesus dies on the cross, he takes sin seriously. 
It's the evil of our world that puts Jesus on the cross. It is the powers and rulers of this world that puts him there. It is greed and violence and selfish ambition. It's human brokenness that nails Jesus to the cross. The Gospels tell us that the evil of this world puts Jesus on the cross. And more importantly, it tells us that Jesus takes upon himself the condemnation of sin. This, this juxtaposition of Jesus who says, I don't condemn you, who then takes on all the condemnation that everyone else has heaped on us. Jesus takes upon our sin onto himself. Now, this next part, like one of you will care about, but there's all these questions about atonement theories and, and what exactly happens in the death of Jesus and does God need like a bloody Jesus? Does he need to be pacified by blood? And there's all these questions and things we could talk about and, and but we're not. But, but what I do need you to, to, to hear is this, is that the ultimate end of sin is death. The ultimate end of sin is death. Now, you don't need a religious leader to tell you that or someone up front with a microphone because you know it. You've seen the ways that brokenness causes the death of all sorts of things. Friendships, families, relationships. You've seen how this plays out. The ultimate end of sin, the ultimate end of brokenness is destruction. The ultimate end of brokenness is death. Paul continues, he set this aside, nailing it to the the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. The message of the gospel is that in Jesus' death, all the sin and condemnation of the world is taken on his shoulders and then in the resurrection, He is raised to new life, and through Christ, new life is possible. The story that you lived is not the story that has to be your future. And the good news of the gospel is this. The good news of the gospel is this. Is that you don't have to forgive yourself because you've already been forgiven. You don't have to forgive yourself because you have already been forgiven. You are holding yourself hostage for your past. You are trying to make payment for your own sins. That never is going to work. All you have to do, this is the beautiful thing about the Christian, the Christian story, is that all you have to do is receive what has been done on your behalf. There's no hoops. There's no like five things you've got to do and then come back and show yourself to be clean. You accept the gift through trust. Now, it begins you on a journey of restoration. It's not a one-and-done event. But you just need to accept what has been done on your behalf. Paul says, it's been done, now receive it. Now receive it. Some of you have spent years trying to move beyond your past. Some of you have jumped from one religious system to another trying to calm the guilt and the shame that you feel. But what I believe is that even with your best efforts, you'll never be able to accomplish what Jesus does. The message of Jesus is this. I acknowledge the evil and the power of sin. I'm not diminishing your past 
but I have taken on your sin. And I invite you to join me in my death and to be raised to new life. Jesus says, your past, it does not define you. There is a new future, a new possibility. A new story can be written. But then we're left with this. What do we do with the memories? What do we do with the memories? Because I want to stand up here and tell you that if you just, if you just accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers, poof, it all goes away. You know that's not true because some of you have accepted the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And those memories, they are following you around like a cloud. Here's what I want to say. That moment that you accept the forgiveness that is offered through Jesus, the moment you say, I have decided to follow Jesus, I, 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 am, I am dying to the old story and I am being raised to a new life in this new story. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. That moment in time becomes a new marker. It becomes a new marker. The cross and the resurrection in the cross and the resurrection, those memories are no longer a reminder of your failure, but instead, they become a reminder of your forgiveness. They're no longer a reminder of your failure, but those memories become a reminder of your forgiveness. And this will take a while. This is where you begin to create new neural pathways in your brain, because when those... You need to know that in the, in the, in the, in the Bible, when it, when it, talks, when it it's typically translates devil, the word there, the more accurate translation is almost always accuser. And the accuser will come to you and remind you, oh, you think you, think you can live a new story? You think you can live a new life? You think you can live a, a life of love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness? I know who you are. Remember who you are. And in those moments where the accuser comes and reminds you of your past, in that moment you can remember, you, you use that memory to say, no, actually this reminds me that I have been forgiven. I have accepted Christ's offer of forgiveness and I am starting a new life, a new story. And as you continue to remind yourself every time the accuser comes to you, no, 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 I am not defined by my failures, I am defined by my future. And I will not allow my past to determine where I go into the future. You just have to keep reminding yourself of that over and over. And what ends up happening is you literally begin to rewire your brain as you remember, I am forgiven. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. And then just thank God. God, I thank you that I'm not that person anymore. God, I thank you that I'm not that person anymore. God, I thank you that I, anger no longer rules my story. God, I thank you that brokenness no longer defines me. God, I thank you that whatever that thing is, is no longer my story. And I thank you for my forgiveness. When you go back and ask the disciples... Peter, James, Matthew, John, whoever, choose your disciple. What can wash away your sins? What can wash away the past? And the answer will always be Jesus. And what's interesting is that the stories in the Bible, if you're looking for like a role model, when you go back and look at Scripture and you look at the, 
the, the people you find in Scripture. They're a conflicted bunch. They are not moral exemplars. Peter denied Jesus. Not only did Peter deny Jesus, but Peter had a, an anger issue. Paul killed Christians. He literally killed Christians. Levi, he extorted people. But the thing that they all have in common, the thing that all the saints of Scripture have in common is not how great they were in the past, but that they found forgiveness and victory over sin and Jesus. Like that's the thing that defines them. That's what makes them saints. And what I want to leave you with this evening is that you do not have to carry around guilt and shame any longer. Sin and condemnation do not have to define your story. Forgiveness and liberation are available to you today, now, in this moment. The only thing you need to do, the only thing you need to do is just trust. It's just trust. And if God doesn't condemn you, if the person who knows more about you than anyone else in the world, who, the person who knows all the things that nobody else knows doesn't condemn you, then who are you to condemn yourself? You don't have to forgive yourself. The forgiveness has already been given. You simply have to trust and accept that forgiveness. And so this evening, if you are tired of carrying around guilt and shame, and regret. I want to invite you to accept God's forgiveness through Jesus. So we're going to end, and I'm going to say a prayer, and I just encourage you to repeat this prayer after me. You don't have to repeat it out loud. And there's nothing magic about the prayer. It's not like some magic incantation. But some of you, you, you need a marker. You need a point and a time and a date when you can look back and say, I made a decision I was going to set Accept the forgiveness that's been offered to Jesus. Because I am tired of allowing my, allowing my future to be defined by my past. And when the accuser comes to you and tries to say, oh, no, 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 this is who you really are, you can say, no, I accepted the forgiveness of Jesus. I will not be defined by my past. I will be defined by my forgiveness and the future that God is giving me. Would you pray with me? God, I, I confess my own sinfulness. I confess my brokenness. And this evening, I accept your forgiveness. And I'm trusting that you will pick up my sins and carry them away for them never to be remembered. And God, I am trusting that in those moments when the accuser comes and begins to whisper in my ear, I'm trusting that you will be there to remind me of who I am in you. I have decided to follow you. No turning back. No turning back. In Jesus' name.